Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, ahead of the holiday weekend, we hear about the bald eagle drama at Stanley Lake that garnered global attention. And as the country celebrates national independence, we hear about a new course at Colorado State University that's incorporating indigenous perspectives into the curriculum. They have these incredible, really valuable frameworks for doing science in a very ethical and responsible way. That and more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. The 99th Greeley Stampede, an annual celebration of Western life that features carnivals, concerts, games, and of course rodeos, is underway ahead of the 4th of July. And amid the tie-downs, barrel racing, and mutton-busting this week was the Miss Rodeo Colorado pageant. The competition itself is fairly short, but many of the competitors spend years vying for the title. Colorado Edition's Alana Schreiber got an inside look at the pageant and what it takes to be crowned Rodeo Queen. A Rodeo Queen pageant is not your average pageant. At least, that's the first thing the organizers at the Miss Rodeo Colorado 2022 competition will tell you. What I'd like people to know is, yes, it's a pageant, but it's not just a beauty pageant. Megan Bryant is president of the Miss Rodeo Colorado Committee. These young ladies are participating in interviews and speeches, and horsemanship is a real key part to this pageant. So it's really all aspects of how she would be an ambassador for the sport of rodeo and that Western lifestyle. Last weekend... Five young women competed for the title of Colorado's Rodeo Queen over the course of three days. The winner was then presented at the Greeley Stampede and will officially kick off her reign in January. But training to become a rodeo queen starts long before then. They generally will go through our clinic so they get some training or they may have been a prior queen, like a county title or a saddle club title. And then they make the decision that they want to pursue this and they sign up and they run. That's right, a clinic. There's an actual course you can take on how to become a rodeo queen, and that won't even teach you the most important trick of the trade. Horsemanship is really everything that's involved with horses. So it's the most obvious thing, which involves riding, but she also has to know about how to care for those horses, different things regarding unsoundnesses and vet care and just normal day-to-day management, everything about tack, everything about anatomy. But before the girls can show off their horsemanship, they have to participate in a fashion show, speeches, and a Q&A session. The pageant season begins with a preliminary round, which was held in early May in a small Greeley auditorium. And at the center of the preliminary event is the young woman that every little girl wants their picture with, Colorado's reigning rodeo queen. My name is Haley Fredrickson, and I am Miss Rodeo Colorado 2021. Originally, Haley was Miss Rodeo Colorado 2020, but when the pandemic came along, canceling rodeos across the country and the 2021 pageant, her reign was extended a year. So I've gotten to represent both the Professional Sport of Rodeo, the PRCA, which stands for the Professional Rodeo Cowboys Association, and agriculture across our state of Colorado, both in-state and out-of-state, and I'm just truly blessed to have this title. Among Haley's duties as queen are traveling around the country to different rodeos, advocating both for the sport and the agricultural communities that support it, 
and spreading the word about her way of life. I'm educating the public about the Western lifestyle, what we represent, our morals, our values. So a lot of us girls say that we're ambassadors. I like to say that I'm a steward because I'm not only promoting and preserving the lifestyle, but I'm trying to recruit people into it so we keep growing the sport and we keep growing the agricultural industry. And today, Haley's more or less the MC of preliminaries. She introduces the contestants as they strut across the stage in their best Western attire. Our next contestant is Tyler Lefford. Becoming Miss Rodeo Caro is more than the crown. It is an opportunity to serve your community and act as a role model, all while representing the sport of rodeo. Of course, it wouldn't be a pageant without an interview question. What is the biggest change you'd like to see for women in the future? The biggest change that I would like to see for women in the future, get involved into the sports and the activities that may have a more prominent male community. After the fashion show, while the girls get ready to ride and the judges start to deliberate, the families of contestants are left to wait nervously. The first time I ever set eyes on Ashley, she was 11 years old and she was on the back of a horse. So it's, it's her lifelong dream. Susan Seawald is a family friend of Ashley Baller, a contestant from Parker, Colorado. The girls have all done great and it's so fun to see because this program, it gives them such a presence and teaches them how to speak and how to carry themselves through life, actually. And Ashley's mom, Cheryl Cena, agrees. It teaches them a different type of integrity that most kids don't have. I guess it sets them up for success as they become adults. But if anyone is curious what the judges might be looking for in their next queen, all they have to do is ask. We are looking for a girl who is approachable by the public. Barbara Jordan, one of the judges, grew up in Boulder as the daughter of a rodeo announcer. She's been involved in the sport since pretty much as long as she can remember. I was born on the rodeo grounds and spent my summers running around the rodeo grounds and getting in trouble on the rodeo grounds. So yeah, I've been around a rodeo my whole life. And Barbara feels like one of the main jobs of the rodeo queen is kind of to bridge a gap. You know, there's somewhat of a disconnect between the average person and rodeo. There's, there's a bit of confusion there about what it all means. And oftentimes a rodeo queen is that great middle person who can explain the events and explain what's happening and really make someone who didn't understand what they were coming to see into a lifetime fan of rodeo. So we're looking for that wonderful outgoing personality, someone who's well-spoken and thoughtful, kind and smart. And here in a minute, we're going to see how well she can ride. Feeling misunderstood by the non-rodeo world kind of seems to be a central theme here. Because when the girls get on their horses, they're anything but dainty beauty queens. They're athletes. After the contestants showed off their riding skills, all five actually advanced to the final round. And nearly two months later, they met back up for a final fashion show, speeches, Q&A, and horsemanship competition. Still, only one can wear the crown. And on June 26th, the title went to Ashley Baller. And for her first order of business... The Greeley Stampede 2021 is back in Northern Colorado for the 99th time, and we are so... You're speaking with Ashley Baller, Miss Rodeo Colorado 2022. Ashley parades into the Greeley Stampede, riding a horse and waving the Colorado state flag. So I'm a first generation cowgirl. My mom nor my dad ever rode horses, had anything to do with the 
ranching or rodeo background, so I was the very first in our family to get started. My step-grandpa saddled me up on his horse named Sassy. It just stuck to me. I was born to be a cowgirl. But Ashley still has a couple of months before her official reign kicks in. And when it does, she wants to carry on the mission of so many cowgirls before her, bridging that gap between the rodeo and non-rodeo divide. I want them to know how just truly fun, just how fun it is. I mean, it's an event that people from age five to 95 can truly enjoy and it's for everyone. I think it's really important right now that we educate the public on why we love rodeo and it's American history in action. So now, Ashley gets to travel around the country and advocate for the Western lifestyle, all while wearing a crown, or in this case, a cowgirl hat. For KUNC, I'm Alana Schreiber. As Coloradans venture into the outdoors and gather for the holiday this weekend, there's a chance they could spot the country's national bird, the bald eagle. We're lucky to live in a part of the country where it's possible to see the national symbol soaring overhead or perched on a distant fence post. At Stanley Lake in Westminster, for example, bald eagles have been steadily present since 1993, and it's become a destination for folks hoping to see the eagles in person. And in the digital age, a 24-hour eagle cam has given viewers across the globe the opportunity to watch the Stanley Lake birds for themselves. With the eagle cam came a loyal national following. And near the beginning of the pandemic last year, a disturbance in the nest in the form of a hostile takeover rocked the eagle enthusiast world. The drama came shortly before a new generation of eaglets were due to hatch from their eggs. The eagle cam captured part of it, along with the imagination of eagle lovers all over the world. Earlier this year, we spoke with Lexi Sierra Martinez, a park ranger at Stanley Lake, who explained all the eagle drama that put the area in the spotlight. Around this time last year, we had two bald eagles that we've had in the park for a few years. Um, we called them mom and dad and they had three eggs and there was a floater eagle. That's what we call an external eagle. That's not part of the, the park or part of the, the nesting area. And her name is now F420, but she came in and she basically tried to take over the nest. Reasons are unknown, but it ended up with an altercation between her and mom. And long story short, mom was never seen again. I have never really seen an altercation between eagles. What was that like? <laughs> yeah, it was It was not seen on camera for the most part. The initial fight was seen from someone who was nearby in the park. And they were basically, it, it seems like they were almost falling to the ground in their fight, sort of chasing after each other. I'm not sure exactly how much damage was done to each other, but it looks like they probably did use their talons quite a bit on each other. There had been some fights later that evening after the initial fight where it's just her trying to get into the nest and dad flapping his wings. Um, our camera has sound, so really, really vocal, screaming quite a bit. Wow. What was it like then for Stanley Lake to suddenly become the center of all of this attention and concern from the Eagle community? It was a lot last year. There were uh, lots of news stations calling, lots of concerned people calling the Nature Center, asking for updates. People were really upset and really concerned. This was right at the very beginning of COVID. So a lot of people were relying on virtual things like 
an eagle cam for entertainment and for comfort and for a sense of normalcy. And then these eagles that haven't had an issue in 25 years uh, start having all this drama. It was, <laughs> it was really upsetting, understandably to staff too. We were, we were glued to our computers. I was working at home temporarily and I had one computer monitor open at all times, just watching the Eagle Cam. How many people typically watch the Eagle Cam? Do you know, do you have a sense of that? And, and do you have any idea how much it increased last year? We have several hundred people who are avid fans that are watching all the time that are active on Facebook fan groups. I would say that during the Eagle drama, we probably had several thousand at any given time. Does that at all translate into more people coming to visit in person, maybe to try to get a glimpse of the nest? Absolutely. We've had a 400% increase in visitation just in 2020. People coming to the Nature Center, asking if they can borrow binoculars. They're here. They heard about the eagles. Just a, a lot, a lot of people coming out. Well, last year, there was a, a lot of hostility towards F420. This year, the public seems to be behind her, rooting for her and, and her forthcoming eaglets. Are eagle fans too fickle here? Um, I wouldn't say that. I, I think it's really hard just as humans in general to not anthropomorphize it's our instinct to assign our own behaviors to other species in order to better understand them. Nothing that F420 was doing was out of spite or anger. She's just trying to survive. We, we want them to succeed at the end of the day. And mom was probably put in the same situation as F420. I am more than anything, just grateful for all of the fans that we have of the Eagles. It helps spread awareness for our wildlife and helps increase protections and helps us educate the public better about what not to do and, and how to safely visit the park. So at the end of the day, even though there was some, uh, some anger towards F420, it all ended up being positive. Lexi Sierra Martinez is a park ranger at Stanley Lake in Westminster. Lexi, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. When we first aired that interview in April, F420 was an expecting mother with two eggs in incubation. Since then, a lot has changed. In May, the only eaglet of the two to initially survive perished when the tall cottonwood tree that held the family's nest split down the middle, causing the nest to collapse and fall to the ground. We reached back out to Lexi Sierra Martinez for an update, and she let us know that F420 and Dad are picking up the pieces since the tragic event and are establishing a new nest elsewhere in the park. The eagles can still occasionally be seen on the 24-hour cam perching on nearby trees, but park rangers aren't sharing the location of the new nest, so they have time to reestablish with minimal outside interferences. You're listening to Colorado Edition from... KUNC. In recent years, some Colorado cities and colleges have publicly recognized the land they are on as the traditional and ancestral homelands of indigenous nations and peoples. These are known as land acknowledgement statements. And as KUNC's Stephanie Daniel reports, a class at Colorado State University is using their admission to help examine the reconciliation work that still needs to be done. I met newly minted CSU professor Dominique David Chavez in the Natural Resources Building on the Fort Collins campus. She asked if she could introduce herself in her indigenous language. Dominique Aita Inaru David Chavez Diri, that's who I am. And Arawak Kibaro Taino Daka, 
That's my community. She stands beside what she calls an elder tree stump in the lobby. The large reddish stump is turned sideways and at its highest stands as tall as five foot one Davi Chavez. More than 80 labels have been pasted on it, creating a horizontal timeline that starts right of center and moves outward. The first date is 1.30 and says the Temple of Olympian Zeus completed. My ancestry is Arawak, Taino, or Caribbean Indigenous. And so we're the people who discovered Columbus. Kneeling down, she reads another one of the labels. But then here, yeah, 1492, Columbus discovered America. The timeline, she says, is all about discovery, conquering, fallen dynasties, and who's in power. But the tree remembers more than just that. And I think about how could we rework this timeline <laughs> to include like what would be important in our communities. Maybe it's natural events, she says, like a drought, fire, or adapting to a hurricane. These are a lot of the things that we remembered are really significant cultural happenings, like an exchange, a meeting of new people, coming to know new seeds that we now grow as a food source. This is the concept behind Davi Chavez's new course, Natural Resource Rights and Reconciliation. She taught it for the first time this spring as a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Forest and Rangeland Stewardship. So we kind of do a lot of 101 about what does it mean to be indigenous? What is the real history of the land here. The course covers hundreds of years of history. It examines how colonialism and imperialism shaped the field of natural resources and how the industry can look to indigenous peoples to become better stewards of the land. So they have these incredible, really valuable frameworks for doing science in a very ethical and responsible way. In a recent virtual class, she spoke about the Antiquities Act of 1906, which protects natural and cultural resources by creating national monuments on public lands. It gets really interesting when you look at the original act in detail and thinking about indigenous rights and history. The lecture then moves to Utah's Bears Ears National Monument, created by President Obama in 2016. Almost a year later, President Trump reduced its size by 85 percent. Now the Biden administration is looking at reversing the decision. At this point, she splits her students into groups. You'll work together collaboratively to analyze the different positions of stakeholders and rights holders. So I really wanted a different perspective on just like environmental studies. That's senior Emily Cruz Arizola. The environmental policy and politics major has indigenous ancestry and identifies as a Latinx woman. Growing up, she says she didn't learn much about Native American history. I guess I never really realized that they are rights holders, not just like stakeholders in environmental issues. They have legal rights and legal grounds. The class also covers land acknowledgements from land-grant universities like CSU. This is from a video statement on the university's land acknowledgement website that was launched in 2019. It begins with a 1906 recording of Hopi Nation Eagle Song. Colorado State University acknowledges with respect that the land we are on today is the traditional and ancestral homelands of the Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute nations and peoples. The college was founded in 1879 with 89,000 acres under the Marill Act grant. According to data from High Country News, the U.S. paid over $3,600 for the indigenous land. The principal endowment raised from the grant was more than $400,000. For every dollar paid to the tribes, CSU raised 113. By 2018, the endowment totaled nearly $356 million. And 
significantly that our founding came at a dire cost to Native nations and peoples whose land this university was built upon. Dominique Davi-Chavez says CSU's land acknowledgement had been in the works for years, but was accelerated after two prospective Native American students were racially profiled and questioned by police during an admissions tour in 2018. Interesting to think that people who are indigenous to these lands to this part of the world, people perceive as looking like they don't belong here. The incident sparked outrage. Indigenous students like Davi Chavez, who was working on her PhD at the time, shared their personal stories of racism and implicit bias. They presented then-President Tony Frank with a list of actions and demanded change. We really use that as a point of leverage to catalyze something better. But she says land acknowledgement is just the beginning of the work that needs to be done. We need to honor rights, first and foremost, inherent rights that people have to the land, to their life ways that have been traumatically taken from Indigenous peoples. She mentions restoring land to tribes, prioritizing and funding access to Indigenous language, and allowing the communities most impacted by colonization to lead the work. Davi Chavez says she'll continue her research on Indigenous land and data stewardship in the fall, then teach her class again in the spring. But her hope is one day the course becomes obsolete, as Indigenous perspectives are woven throughout all classes in the department. Stephanie Daniel, KUNC. Fifty Two Eighty Magazine, based in Denver, is known for its coverage of Colorado's culture and food scene. Now, for the first time, an Asian American woman is at the helm of the magazine's dining coverage. Colorado Editions' Tess Novotny spoke with Patricia Kalthamrong back in May about her new role as food editor at 5280 and how her love for food has shaped her personal life and career. Kalthamrong began by sharing how she first got into food journalism. Well, I wanted to be a writer and a journalist since high school, and I went to journalism school at CU Boulder, but... I didn't really start writing about Colorado when I worked at a travel marketing company that produced Colorado Tourism's vacation guides and website. During that time, I also realized how much I wanted to share stories about my family, particularly the food that my my mother made that I love so much. So I started a little food blog featuring recipes and the stories behind them, which led me to 5280. What did food mean to you and your family growing up? Food was always a huge part of my life because my parents, who are from Bangkok, had a gas station. They recently retired, but they had the gas station for almost 40 years. They worked 24-7, so mealtime was One of the only times we could be together and sharing food around the table was ultimately how you express love. And one of the only things that my parents had time for, and it it kind of connected us to what they left behind in Thailand. How did eating food so far away from Thailand help you stay connected to your family's culture and heritage? Well, like a lot of kids who grew who grow up in immigrant families, I think you just kind of want to fit in and not seem different. And I grew up in Arvada, so there weren't a lot of Asian students at my school. So I, I wanted to seem as American as possible. And to me, that meant eating as many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, pizza and cheeseburgers 
and I, I made my mom buy them and I feel terrible. And, you know, she was, she understood, but in the end, I always came home and we always ate around the dinner table what they ate growing up in Bangkok. And it, it always brought me home the food that my mom made. And as I grew up, I realized how special that is and how it really connects you to others and is something that you should share because it's wonderful. What kind of change would you want to see both at 5280 and just in in food writing and dining coverage in general? At 5280, we've always strived to make our coverage as inclusive as possible. But like any publication, there's always, always room for growth. And I hope that my roots, my life experience and perspective will help bring more voices into the pages of the magazine and onto 5280.com, like I said, and help us produce more stories that showcase the beauty of our differences because the stories I love writing and editing the most are the ones that showcase how food unites us. Like I realized growing up that my family's dishes could connect me with others and connect me with my family. And it's just such a beautiful thing. And I think, I hope we can get more coverage that's inclusive. So it gives people opportunities, our readers to understand and appreciate the cultures of other Coloradans. Patricia Kalthamrong is the new food editor for 5280 Magazine in Denver. Patricia, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we dive into the global history of avocados. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.